Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many can so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. Have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. And it's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvellous. Four. Your hosts, Boo and Sean. Uh, welcome back, everyone. I hope everyone's enjoyed uh, Easter. Uh, we are in holiday mode here on The Few today, and we are broadcasting from the farm. Uh, and we have some behind-the-scenes footage of some of the dramas trying to do a remote podcast uh, in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so it's certainly been uh, an, an interesting morning. Uh, so we're going to lift the standard uh, in a moment. Uh, and we speak to our guest today, super excited to speak to Jonathan. He's got some interesting stories and definitely uh, some insights that I think our few are really going to enjoy. How are you, Sean? Fantastic, mate. It was a great, uh, beautiful drive down here to the you know, south coast of New South Wales and down to the farm. And uh, Looks like we've overcome the technical uh, uh, technical issues. Better late than never. But uh, I think we've demonstrated right. some of those core traits of the few. We've demonstrated resilience, problem solving. Kept our pendulum <laughs> as neutral as possible. Uh, and uh, yeah, ready to welcome our guest on board for today. Awesome. Well, with no further ado, uh, let's introduce our guest today. He is a best-selling author. He's a futurist, a trends analyst. And I tell you what, uh, in the era of COVID, uh, that must be a really challenging job role to try to be the trends and, and what the future is going to look like uh, today. He's certainly met some interesting people. He's been all over the world. He's been speaking for uh, nearly 20 odd years. Uh, so with no further ado, uh, thanks Jonathan McDonald for joining us today on The Few. Hi everyone. It's an absolute honour to be here. I'm a big fan of your series and and everything that's happening with Afterburner as well. So I'm yeah, I'm an absolute, I'm in, in awe. And so thanks for inviting me on. Oh, that's super kind of you, Jonathan. Thanks so much. To carry on from where Boo started is, you know, the, 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 things that we're seeing happen at the moment, you know, coming from a place of, of understanding and, and I suppose helping to predict in some way what's going to happen in the future. Uh, what's your take on the fact that we've got, you know, particularly here in Australia, we, we've got um, what I'm seeing a, like this a dichotomy of forces at play where you have, you know, massive impact of COVID, negative impact on business and and and, uh, and uh, the economy and things like that. Yet we've now seen, for example, Sydney now becoming the third most expensive property, uh, you know, property in the world. Like there's these opposing forces. I mean, how the heck do we start to look into the future when things don't seem to be making much sense? Even just 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 referencing that point. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, interestingly enough, the for many years people have classed me as a futurist, and I I quite often. Um, slightly reword that to being a nowist um I, I, my, my version of futurism is that today is the slowest pace of change we'll ever experience and we are perpetually designing the future from moment to moment and so i've been a proponent of something i call productive paranoia for many years which is that um actually we we know that the only thing we can predict is that stuff changes and we know that that things don't pretty much ever really go to plan therefore this situation that we're in at the moment isn't necessarily something that is out of the blue if you actually take a zoomed out perspective of the last 2000 years of humanity, let alone everything BC. So we're in a cyclical pattern where 
Um, from an epidemiology perspective, it's, it's quite obvious what happens when you don't get herd immunity and you shut borders and, and everyone stay inside and what happens over a period of five years and 10 years after that. Everyone knows what happens if you burn a hole through the ozone layer and then wonder whether or not there's going to be more or less forest fires in the future. Um, none of this is unpredictable, really. Um, I'm less interested in whether or not flying cars are just around the corner, and I'm more interested in... Oh, look, everyone's in, everyone's interested in flying cars, mate. I mean, flying cars have been around since the 50s. The, yeah, there's too many wheels. <laughs> but, the, but I think the, the, the reality is, is that if we adopt a, 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 view, a productively paranoid view that actually, you know what, pretty much things go either to plan or not to plan, and it's how we respond which matters. Um, less to do with, you know, oh, fantastic, we've got our new normal. Now it's going to be calm for the next 30 years. That's a, that's, um, that's a fallacy, especially bear in mind the change in the next 10 years is likely to be similar to the change in the last 50. So especially in terms of every industry vertical, automotive, education, healthcare, you know, these things are fundamental axioms of our society and they are certainly not determined by the stability of the last 50 or 100 years. They're actually determined by what's happening right now, which has had a fundamental impact on all of those things. Do you think fundamentally, Jonathan, that the pendulum is swinging further and further? I like the Tacoma Bridge analogy. You know, every bridge is designed to allow the wind to blow through, to not resonate, and then uh, the Tacoma Bridge gradually got this resonant frequency until it ripped itself apart. Do you think that in today's world, for whatever reason, we're starting to see a broader spectrum of volatility and less predictability, more chaos? Yep. Yes, indeed. Um, great analogy. Uh, it's also echoed by Moore's law, which is that every year the size of a computer chip becomes half and the capability goes double. And if that's exponential growth. So the, and the, obviously the price impact in there as well. So we're, we're in a situation, I think, using the bridge analogy that if we accept that things become more oscillating over time, then we will become less able to predict over time. In fact, I've always said to futurists, if you are really a futurist, then what's the next lottery numbers? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think we, we are living in times of, of less certainty. Um, change happens faster now. Life moves faster. And then it's down to how we think as humans about that and how we use change. And, you know, my, my, most recent book, The Bestseller, Powered by Change, is actually all about that uh, paradigm. You know, what happens when we are unable to actually have a comfort zone because it's been taken from us, rather than the good old days of business. When I started out 30 plus years ago in business, it was, it was a relatively stable situation. Changes would come every five to 10 years. You'd be in a career for 10 to 15 and, and you know it's all it's all good now anyone who's lived from january 2020 to today will know that that's not necessarily the way that life works and what i would urge any listener or watcher uh, to consider is that this isn't the last change uh, it's just the next and so the in preparation for what happens next uh, we can think differently about what we need as stability and personally i believe that we can um, look at how we think and choose our responses of, as Victor Frankl says, you know, there's a gap between stimulus and response. And in that gap lies our choice, our growth and our freedom. And so we can choose what we do about this. It can either be the end, it's a disaster, our career's over, or we can think, right, all right, well, so my entire year of income has been written off. 
what actually am I here to do really as a human? Am I really genuine? Did I really, really want to be an architect in the first place? Did I really, you know, I went to law school for eight years and then I became a lawyer because my dad wanted me to. Is this now an opportunity where I don't need to be? And so I like that opportunity in, 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 the, in the potential of chaos. I think, and you're right, we've seen that a lot. Um, you know, I, I run a, a business group called Inner Circle and we have over 120 uh, business owners in that uh, environment. And we've seen a number of them go through that where they had a fairly clear purpose and mission and what they wanted to achieve and they do this with their business and everything. And I would say at least 20% of them have now reset that and gone, you know what, I actually don't want this all the way up here. If I bring that expectation down, I can realize it sooner and I can step into those other areas that I'm more passionate about. But it, pl- it plays to human nature, right? This is the whole fundamental issue. Yeah, we know the hole in the ozone layer is bad. We know fires are bad. But until my house burns down and it affects me personally, I- I'm not going to do anything about it. And I think for business owners and, and leaders, I- I- working with some huge companies at the moment with 40,000, 50,000 people trying to figure out what to do next. So what do they do, Jonathan? Well, actually, I mean, you know, we've, we've mentioned Afterburner. Sean, you've mentioned in a circle, so I may as well mention the fact that my, my version is called poweredbychange.com. Um, it's the, everything I've learned from the last 30 years in business in a software as a service for businesses, business coaches, actually, so they can help other businesses um, actually start by orientating what you really stand for and what it, why it matters. But then through a process design of the people that you're working with and how they work. And my, my without looking at one platform or another, I think in general what we should do or could do is to start with an introspection and build from the position of what, what our telos is or our telos, depending on your pronunciation of Greek philosophy. And our telos is what we really are as a person here for. So the telos of this is to, to hold liquid and the telos of a knife is to cut. What's our telos as a person? Just because we studied engineering doesn't necessarily mean that's who we are, who we really are and what we're here to do. And so if nothing else, any listener or viewer could could actually take this moment of chaos, um, which is slower than the next moment of chaos, to think what really, bearing in mind everything kind of can can go to go to dust in a nanosecond, what in fact do I really want to do in these moments of time? I mean, I've got maybe, you know, if I'm fortunate, maybe 400 months left in my life if i'm fortunate based on the average median age that's that you're a real futurist you could predict that date as well that's that's amazing so it's that's that's pretty much that's that's if it's a, if i have a really good innings so the question is how many if i've got about 400 months left what am i going to do in those let's say 1600 weeks you know what's what what really do i care that much about and then of course the resistance point at that that moment and i've been helping companies big and small over the decades with this particular question is well, how, what about if the answer doesn't necessarily mean something that I can monetize and then of course the, the resistance is well you know I, I know that really my passion what I'm here to do is to be an artist or be a chef or be a whatever but I can't do that I'm 50 years old now I can't do that or I can't yes but dot 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 and that's not actually the most elevated way of looking at it if you elevate your perspective of really what business you're truly in as a person, then you realize the ability to innovate is vast. And I've challenged people for decades with this one point, I'll offer it free of charge on here. If anyone emails me at jonathanmacdonald.com with a concept that they think they couldn't monetize, within 24 hours, I will return a plan of how to monetize it with proof of how to monetize it free. Nothing to upsell from or anything else like that, purely because there hasn't been anyone 
that's actually come up with a thing that they are genuinely passionate about that they couldn't monetize. I've never seen it. It's a good it's a good point that you raise, Jonathan, um, and and I think it plays to the few around. Let's say your passion is riding jet skis, right? You you love going out on the weekend, going out in the jet ski. Now, if a hundred people love jet skis and they're passionate about it. The world can't sustain a hundred jet ski rental operators. So therefore, there's this small group, the one or two percent, who do pursue their passion and do find that niche, and they successfully you know, feel that passion and purpose. So, what is it that makes a difference between those two groups of people? You've you've been around. You've seen a lot of people spoken at big events. Do you believe that anyone can be one of these one or two percenters, or do you believe there's a leadership cohort and there's people that can realise visions? and everyone else follows. Yeah, empowered by change, I call it um, skill versus will. So if you imagine a two by two grid and you have people with skill and less skill and people with will and less will, and you have a two by two, uh, the people with the skill and the will tend to be leaders. Uh, The people with the skill and the less will tend to actually be the most potential um, uh, kind of cognitive surplus in the company because actually as Gartner Employee Engagement Survey said, about 74% of all members of staff have the skill, they just don't have the will. Mm. And then you have people with no skill and no will, which are problems, and you have people with the will, but not necessarily the skill, and they're the people who can learn. And so if you look at that kind of two-by-two grid methodology, then the few um, are in the left-hand edge of that, which is the people with the will, even if they don't necessarily have the skill. The skill is far less relevant than the will to actually test, learn and improve. And so, yes, even though the offer to people to say, you know, what is it you really believe in and stand for as a purpose from an elevator perspective? And how could you actually make that your career? Because if you find a job that you love, you never work a day in your life. Um, Very few people action that. I would say that I've spoken to 45% of the Fortune 500 companies and I'm in my 10th startup myself after several exits and so forth. So I would say that I can't, only empirically, not scientifically, there would be something like one in a thousand people who genuinely will take that step where everyone else always says to themselves, you know, I, I wish I had done X, Y, and Z. There's, there's maybe one in a thousand that say, that say the otherwise. But just one quick analogy is that 75% of people uh, who want to go smoking don't. And so the, and they don't even try. So three quarters of the people that actually want to don't actually even try to. And I think that's actually probably a generous statistic. I, I suggest it's even higher than that. I've, from the people I've spoken to in business, I would say maybe twice or three times a year, I will find an executive who goes, actually, you know what? This is what I want to do. I mean, I managed to help a, a, a guy who ran one of the largest global online gaming companies, gambling firms, to realize that his actual passion was to be a farmer. And I helped him through a period, a five-year period of gradually selling out his business, selling off his business and constructing an entire enterprise in, in the south of Spain as a farmer. And... Um, and this is an example of someone, you know, when he when he secretly told me when I was over at his place in um, in Marbella, in his beautiful villa paid for by other people's um, credit cards, I said to him, you know, what's it, you know, are you really, do you want this legacy for your children? Is this what you're going to leave? Is this really, is it in your heart? And he said, you know, I've got to, I've got to be absolutely honest with you. It's not, it's not really, you know, if, what I really want to do is be a farmer, but I can't do that. I mean, I, I'm a billionaire online gaming firm owner. And I said, well, let's just discuss the farming thing. Let's just. Yeah. 
Why no? I, th- I think a lot of time, Jonathan, what I've seen too is the, particularly working so closely with business owners for the last 15 plus years and it is that a lot of lip service in, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. But when it comes to the crunch, there's a sunk cost bias in, well, I've, I've spent 15 years building this business and it's almost like it's part of their, it's another arm or another leg. It's part of them, you know, and, it, and it, they've got to step out of that. How have you seen or worked with people and supported them to actually, I guess, cut off that limb and move forward? Yeah, the, sec- the second, the entire second section of Power by Change actually goes through the hundreds of heuristics and biases as a me- mechanism to actually distill which parts you're actually suffering from. And just before, just before you go on, on with that point uh, that Sean made, more broadly, that transition, you might be a 20-year employee, a seriously senior exec on big money in a corporate. When you frame this response, mate, is there a difference between life transition, whether you're a business owner, an athlete, an ex-military person, a billionaire entrepreneur, or is there a common roadmap to make those huge transitions? Yeah, I think I think really, to be honest, I, I'm fearful of the differential between business context and personal context. I'm fearful of that. And the reason I'm fearful of that is that there is a danger of thinking that um, we are a different person in professional life and personal life. And the truth is we're not. And I think that over time, and I'm not pointing fingers at um, Clayton Christensen or Peter Drucker or any of the heroes of, of, of business thoughts that go into our beautifully constructed, very outdated MBA. <laughs> <laughs> with no disrespect to them there there has always been a divorce between or an amicable separation between who we are at home versus who we are in business and so actually the framing of my answer is thus um there is only a, an approach that we have there isn't an approach in life and business differently there is an approach we can pretend to be a different person in life and business but we turn up as ourselves and we can glare it in biases and heuristics but the truth of the matter is how it lands with us and how it resonates with us and if it fulfills us or not is actually an absolute so so i don't think that there's a differentiation so back to the point of biases and heuristics that and how we can overcome those things um i think from my learning anyway, is that everything is, has this undertone of how we actually can respond to what's going on and how aware we are of our thoughts. And the truth of the matter is, guys, and everyone listening and watching, is that we think about 70,000 thoughts a day and 90% of them are the same as the day before. 90%. So what we're actually doing is constructing a version of reality that's remarkably similar to the version of reality we had yesterday. And the reason we do that is largely down to comfort zones and to Sean's point, a sunk cost trap where we actually do the same thing again and again and again. And of course, as has been well said, that is actually then the definition of insanity, expecting a different result from the same input. So I, I think that we could do a lot worse than to look at how we've constructed our thinking. And that's, that's the, the opening part of Power by Change, which anyone can use free of charge. You can, you can go onto powerbychange.com and actually become an accredited Power by Change coach free of charge. So um, this, is just, this is just a heuristic, that, that part is a heuristic and biases methodology that you can at least see why you think the way you think. And I think that both of what you guys do, looking into what you've done online, uh, has, has a very much of an undertone of um, how to get to a flawless execution plan, if you like, to, to quote Boo, in, in a, with a mindset of being aware of what would normally hold us back having the bias, the, the barriers that we can identify 
and say, I'm aware that these are the barriers, but also I'm aware that this is my perception of it being a barrier. There's pretty much only two barriers, I think. One is that we can't breathe underwater unaided, and the other is we can't fly without wings. Other than that, I'm not, I don't buy into any barrier, personally. A, I love all the statistics. I love empirical uh, research that supports behavioral change and the, the fact that we uh, tend to, I call it the excuse matrix. And the longer, I mean, I've only really been in the coaching space and working with, with uh, super large corporates for five years. I'm, you know, I'm a newbie. But the glaring thing I'm just so surprised at is, is the universe that people create in their minds as to their reality and then live to this perceived reality. Uh, and that is every boundary they create uh, is is that. And and I constantly wonder, I'm not a psychologist, but I wonder what is it about human nature that makes us create boxes to live in? What do you, what do you think, Jonathan? I think there is a, a tendency, human nature, I mean, humans are different from animals because of three biological constructs, right? So scientifically speaking, we are different because one, we have an awareness of our own mortality, i.e. we know we're going to die despite the fact that 99% of humans try and deny that only reality that we have and therefore fear it because it's scary being not here. Whereas in fact, of course, we won't know because we're not here. Nonetheless, so we, one is our awareness of our mortality. The second is that we have an awareness of our, um, that there may be something other, that there potentially is some form of esoteric spiritual otherness or something that is controlling a great mechanism in the sky on a cloud with a guy with a beard or whatever it is, you choose your poison. That's the second thing. And the third thing is that we are social animals and we have a social desire to be amongst others. They're the only three things that differentiate us from, from any other animals in the kingdom. So therefore, it's not because it's an innate human quality that we, <laughs> we want to form boxes around that. It must be something other. And I'm, I'm afraid to say that from a psychological perspective, and I, my, even from my, my, my diploma in neuroeconomics kind of touched on this in terms of decision making, is that we uh, actually have a good dose of two really evil stepsisters, and they are fear and greed. And unfortunately, fear, which of course we could argue is false expectations appearing real, fear is a, 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 a horrible construct of a time machine where we either fear that something in the past has affected us moving forward or something in the future will affect us now that means we can't. And greed, wanting something that we don't have, even then when we arrive at it, wanting something more because we're never actually fully satisfied. And those two sepsis of fear and greed force us, we force ourselves to construct boxes so we can either diminish fear or fulfill our greed. And then inside that, there is, especially where I live in, in, in the Gold Coast, there is this extraordinary amount of comparison. Everyone appears to compare. And it's your, there's this look up and down, there's a broad beach look up and down, right? So you look up and down, everyone looks up and down, you meet someone and go, hi, how are you doing? And you then compare, uh, this, is this person thinner, fatter, stronger, faster, fitter, whatever, whatever, richer, I don't know. And the problem with comparison inside fear and greed is that we then create a story. And when we create that story for our life, we then compare ourselves to the story as to where we think we are. And it's an extremely dangerous way of living. And I, I would, class um maybe the stoics as a as a remedy for that let's if we take you know seneca lucia seneca for instance he said that no person has the power to have everything they want but it is in their power to want what they don't have and to cheerfully put to good use what they do have 
And so it's kind of like, if we can separate what we control to what we can't control, we can be content with things that aren't necessarily right or wrong or good and bad, they just are. And so probably the lesson I would offer is that change just is, and we don't need to fight it. We don't need to cling on to certainty and comfort. We can use uncertainty and discomfort as power. It's purely a choice. We can decide to use those things as a positive, if, or, or alternatively, let's remain fearful and let's remain in a box and think, no, we, we hope that the change passes. Of course, it, it won't. So, Jonathan, with in relation to that, I just want to tie two points together. Obviously, before you were talking about the the kind of the one in a thousand people that you see actually uh, with the will take the action to, to make a change. Do you, would you say that those people that are more driven by, you know, getting to that point and then they want a bigger chaos or a faster car or this one and they're never quite satisfied. Do you think in looking at that uh, previous context of people actually then living their passion, do you feel that that's an, an attempt to uh, you know, feel more passion in their lives when they're not actually focusing on that? They're too busy with their business and they're identified with that, but they're not actually going down that, that path and really, you know, living as one of the few and living that passion. Yes, I think so. And I think that there is an element of, you know, if we, if we put aside, I'm saying this in front of a fighter pilot, so it's, I feel massively underqualified to say these words. But Don't worry, mate, I feel like that all the time. <laughs> I've got a valid imposter syndrome here saying what I'm just about to say, but I think, I think that there are those people who feel the fear and do it anyway, to quote, you know, some others. And in the same way as, you know, fail fast, fail often is kind of a misnomer. I prefer learn fast and learn often. I also don't really buy into the feel the fear and do it anyway. I think we can actually take a, a more of a scientific view of fear. And there's a great book by Dan Gardner, which is called The Science and Politics of Fear. And, uh, and the book's actually called Risk, and the subtitle is The Science and Politics of Fear. And what he speaks about there is that there's, there's rational and irrational fear. And with rational fear, uh, that's inversely proportional to understanding, i.e. if we understand things more, for instance, the most dangerous part of air travel is the drive to the airport. If we fully actually understand it, really fully understand it in terms of probability and scientific observation, then our fear can actually be diminished if it's rational. If it's irrational fear, then obviously you're in a whole different ballpark. And it doesn't matter what you say, you can, you can give people any form of remedy, but the irrationality actually takes over. So to Sean, to your point, there are maybe a one in a thousand, one in a million, maybe one in a hundred. And I'm hoping that there's a dozen people listening to this at the same time who actually look around the circle and go, actually eight of us feel this. So therefore the stats of one in a thousand BS, which would be great. That'd be a great outcome. I think those people who actually are one of the few have a different relationship with fear in their own lives. Personally speaking, I know as a fact that when things go absolutely badly wrong, it is always just before fantastic success. I don't know why it's really... It's the rules. It's the universal rule. It's it's that you have to literally be right at the bottom. And uh, I don't know about you, Jonathan, but certainly speaking in the last uh, 12 months has been a big, uh, you know, a massive hit for everyone. Uh, so going through the process of, oh, I now have to recreate my, my speaking business or deal with a, a part of the business that is just no longer exists. And I had the trifecta. I owned a hotel, uh, was in the speaking game and owned an aviation magazine uh, leading into COVID. So boom, boom, boom. That was fantastic. Talk about learning points right there. It really hits the nail on the head on the things that you're not doing. You've, the time that you have that you are executing on the job is gone. So now you've got time to, to, to think about it and, and 
and re- reframe it. And what's been really interesting is seeing these cohorts of of pilots, senior pilots, people you know earning three hundred, two fifty, three hundred thousand a year, which is a nice living, uh, to make starting their own cafes, moving into their own small business. They have made that transition, and now that it's like okay, come back to work, they're like, well, you know what? Actually, I'm uh, I'm going to stick with my new venture here. I'm not going to come. I'm not going to come back. So go back, going back to fear and. The you said something before again. I got super excited about which is yeah the difference between the human and the animal. So much of our behavior is driven by the animal our animal cells, not our conscious cells, right? Uh, so when you look at things like fear and greed, and I certainly as I get older notice this a lot more. It's why am I fearing this, and what what why can I just not be happy with what I have? I've got. You know the the partner exactly the dream partner I wanted the the business and the the fulfillment every day I always wanted but something scratches away in the back there which is like go find something else do do something else um, and and I think you've got to build this cognitive layer um, and which is to say no click click a switch cognitively think yourself out of that instinctive. Um, reaction and get yourself back back on uh, path. How important is that, do you think, to take responsibility and have mantras and habits that help manage that those instincts? You know what? I will say that that's probably my superpower, um, which I'm still working on. I'm still honing it. But that is the most powerful thing that I adopt in my life of everything. That and exercise and trying to eat more plants rather than animals. That, that, that trifecta. But anyway, primarily... Um, that is the the key. So when I drift into a daydream of thought patterns that are in a self-talk about things that are bad or things that make me mad or things that shouldn't have happened to me or what I deserve, this is all in all contexts, business, otherwise, whatever. And I don't differentiate between personal and professional life, as you know, because we're all human being, uh, except we seem to live like we're human doing for some reason. Mm. So while when I notice that I'm caught up in self-talk, I remind myself that this is just self-talk. It's only real if I allow that self-talk to dictate my reality. I then choose what I prefer that would make me more peaceful and more fulfilled. And then I design my self-talk patterns to match exactly that. And that process, that mantra, if you like, takes now about two minutes, but it used to take about six hours. <laughs> mm. So, so um, <laughs> over the last 10 years, I've managed to tune it from six minutes down to two and I can't actually work out uh, six hours down to two and I can't work. Some mathematicians in here will work out very quickly what ratio that is per year, but I'm not sure it's very fast. But anyway, getting, getting, that, getting that to happen is a mechanical, and I'm afraid to say it, absolutely persistent mantra. Every Every, on this call, I've done it twice, maybe three times. I will do it another 100 times today. It's so true. That, that, that link, that switch that goes off, the, the car that cuts you off, the, the kids that frustrate you, uh, every single thing that happens, you realize it's your animal instinct response to that situation, not the smart response. One of the, thing, one of the things that, uh, you know, that I've obviously picked up is this people talk about, Oh, you know, learning a new habit takes you 21 days. Well, that's a load of rubbish. If you've had 30 or 40 or 46 years in my case of doing something habitually, it's going to take a long time to unlearn that before you can now really embed something new. And I think that's what people, people with the, you know, have abs in you know 90 days or whatever. It's like, well, unless you change all your habits, the other habits, 
just doing lots of sit-ups isn't going to give you the outcome and it's not sustainable because you've got to unlearn this stuff. And I think, as you say, that the self-talk piece, uh, to me, it's if you observe it, what we observe, the things that create this disharmony tend to be all based around our preferences. I either like that or I don't. I want to do that or I don't want to do that. That's pretty much it. If you if you listen, and I've spent you know like you, uh, you know, many many years shoveling that big pile of manure in front of me to try and see the sunlight. Um, that that what I've observed is that is the bit that actually creates the disharmony. Is when I allow my preferences to overcome the actual situation rather than just accepting the situation and potentially surrendering to it and going, I don't have to like it, but if I resist the hell out of it. It's not going to be a very nice experience, you know. Where have you seen that come up? Yeah, I'm going to I'll riff off the top of that actually because the there is a um, <clears throat> from a kind of a Marcus Aurelius point of view, uh, fantastic one of my favourite philosophers of all time, um, had, would would go along the lines of in some of his texts and talks the fact that you know bearing in mind that Seneca was talking around there's stuff that we can control and we can't control. Aurelius kind of would extend that and say that actually we, we should not necessarily see things that happen as making our identity. So if something happens to us, it's not actually happening to us. There is nothing such, there's no thing as a bad thing happening. There's something that's happened and then there's our interpretation of it being bad. And, and that, our interpretation of being bad is a choice interpretation. Frankel in Man's Search for Meaning, one of the greatest books ever written on earth. Um, talks about his Holocaust experience, watching his entire his family be gassed to death, and then his interpretation of how he can learn from that and forgive the prison guards, etc. This is uh, an assimilation of how we can actually not identify ourselves with the stuff that's happening and go, oh, I observe that it's now raining for the fifth day in a row here on the Gold Coast. It's not, by the way, it's sunny. It's now raining for the fifth day in, in a row on the Gold Coast. And it, why is it always raining when we're on the Gold Coast? Why, why, when every time we want to go to the beach, it's always raining. And what happens is that we're then attaching ourselves to the rain as some form of correlation or, or some kind of, even worse, a causation. And this, this descriptive causation and correlation is extremely damaging to ourselves. We, we, some people talk about the, the sabotage, self-sabotage and stuff, but the truth of the matter is that's how we live. It's not a one-off self-sabotaging moment. We live in a constant self-sabotaging cycle. So true. I, I, this self-sabotage mechanism and watching people do it. I, uh, I, I was walking along the beach once with a friend of mine who I'd known for like 20 years and walked long beaches, runs in the military, spent a lot of time together, right? And a seagull flew over the top and crapped on them. And that person's like, oh, God damn it. Every time I go to the beach, I get shat on by a bird. It's like, I've been to the beach with you like 50 times. You have never been crapped on by a seagull in that time. No, 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 no. It always, always happens. Uh, so it's, it's funny, that programming, isn't it? We do. And, and in relationships, it's really, it's really unfortunate when, we, when someone, our partner makes us mad because they've done something which basically is totally innocuous it doesn't mean it you know they don't they don't ask us if we want another cup of tea but they always used to ask us and they don't make it amazing ask us if we want another cup and then we say well you know you, you you never actually you don't really look after me as i want to be looked after and so we've gone from a cup of tea and we've catastrophized it into something that you know and it's i mean i've spent 
a decade and more actually um, in psychotherapy from my own choice without being prescribed, self-prescribed psychotherapy. Um, largely because I wanted to understand why my thought patterns were the way they were and how I could hack my thinking. And I've spent a decade doing that. And in fact, my next book is about that. And in fact, that's the one of the things that I'm, I enjoy about life. <laughs> and there's many things I enjoy about life is that I, I, I like really, really, really bad scenarios happening purely so that I can work out how to like, for instance, with 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 some of the some of the businesses I've been involved in, when you know you launch and no customers arrive, nothing, none. So everything's fantastic. There's a website and you've done your marketing campaign. You put money into Facebook ads and nothing happens. It's like it's tumbleweed. And um, and I that for me that turns me on. I'm like, oh, there's a mess. And when there's a mess, there's a market. And now it's going to be now now it's about not losing our heads. Now everyone, now this is the moment. No, no, no little emails to each other saying it's your fault. No blame storming. Now is the moment. Now is the moment. This is a test. What we're going to do now is we're going to actually understand what's going on, take an objective view and then apply ourselves and then test, learn, improve, test, learn, improve. And then in retrospect, we're not going to lie about the fact that this happened. We're not going to say that this overnight success was overnight because actually, to quote Steve Jobs, the nearest to an overnight success he's ever experienced takes 10 years. We're actually going to be honest about the fact that we launched this, didn't work. Launch an iteration that also kind of didn't work, you know. And to you know, Max Levchin, you should have seen the five startups he had. Sorry, the four startups before the one that worked. This crappy startup, one, two, three, four, not working, not working, not working. Number five was PayPal. So it, you know, the Dyson vacuum cleaner. That iteration, I think, is one thousand five hundred and seventy. Yeah, something ridiculous. Yeah, well, like iteration nine hundred and twenty-four gave everyone in the factory an electric shock. <laughs> so, so it's like you know let's let's be honest with ourselves here and let's go through these iteration cycles and really embrace it and when there's trouble in relationships and trouble at work it, this is what a what a gift it's a massive learning excuse i love it no i think i think you're yeah you, you you've nailed it there and again i think some people naturally have that inclination there's a curiosity to go there uh, some people uh, i think they're just never going to get it but for those People that are listening to this podcast, people that get you to speak in their organization or me or, or join Sean's inner circle, they've already made the decision. They've already demonstrated that that's what they want. And I think that's why it's important to share it. Now, speaking of people who have made it, uh, you've, you've met some pretty interesting characters, Jonathan, haven't you? I mean, you've got the CEO of Ikea. I know where you're going. <laughs> I know where you're going. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was once asked by um, Richard Branson's people, to fly down to the Cayman Islands and, um, and spend three days with uh, 200 of his most inner circle, his, uh, his, his business people, um, so that um, I could assist in expanding their thoughts and, and really kind of, you know, instigate some change mentality. And of course, Richard spoke about um, his primary passion at the moment is the ocean, uh, ocean health um, and, mar and marine life and stuff. So he, he, he did some stuff about that. But then he, he my, my cohort, my, my kind of support acts were, were Meghan Markle, Jamie Lee Curtis and Jay Leno. And so, <laughs> you, and, don't, you don't want to follow people like that, do you? It's like, and, then, it's... and then in the evening, Anna Kornikova that gave us a tennis masterclass, right? Oh, wow. That's good. great. That's some real talent, mate. You're up there with... It was. So but what I found really interesting is this, um, and, I, and it's echoed throughout my career when I, you know, I was commercial director, director of ministry of sound. I opened all the nightclubs around the world for ministry, including the world's largest nightclub in Singapore. Um, 
I helped uh, the British music industry. I was the chairman of the British music industry for two years, digitized the music industry, including selling one of my startups to Apple at the time. So there's, in all the experiences I've had, what I realized over at Branson's event was that you can strip away the nine-figure income and the 10-figure asset value from any human being. And underneath the surface, they are all, every single one of us, uh, subject to heuristics and biases that are relatively easy to spot, relatively easy to address, and therefore it is purely down to choice. And what I learned back in, back in this is 2014, 2015, when I did Branson's retreat, um, and I'm one of the very few people, I'm very lucky actually, I'm very, one of the very, very few people to actually know his actual email address, which is so brilliant because when you email his personal email address, it comes back saying this email doesn't exist. <laughs> Richard Branson at Virgin, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Richard Branson, come on, boo. Uh, anyway, one, of the things, one of the things that I realized was that every one of these people has the same patterns that the people who are on the breadline have and people in poverty have. And, the, and actually, if I was really to be analytical, if I've worked in 113 cities over my career, and I would say that the most miserable people I've ever met are the richest mm-hmm. in terms of financial wealth, and the most content people I've met are the people who actually can, can get through their life, um, not necessarily with anything extra, but actually be content with what they have. They tend to be more Buddhist, more stoic, um, more accepting of what is. Um, and out of the 200 people I spoke to over in the Caymans, over half of those people are, are living a life where I'm pretty sure they will arrive at their deathbed with the regrets that the nurse, the Australian nurse, Bronnie Ware, found the top deathbed regret of all, which is I wish I'd allowed myself to be more happy. Yeah. And so if I could wave a magic wand to the world and I was king for the day, uh, not that you have to, you know, as, as I can't remember who, who said the fact that, you know, you can put a crown on a clown, but it does not make him king. Um, <laughs> if, I, if, I could, if I could wave a magic wand, then I would um, ask, I would, I, would, I would change people's prioritization to their own happiness and fulfillment and contentment and peace. And I'd deprioritize the material gain versus their neighbor who's got a slightly better car or whether or not they're wearing a designer brand because it's like, it makes them feel, or whether, or whether or not they're wearing three years of version ago, I watch rather than the new latest version or whatever, you know, or if, if we could just be content, you know, I, I've had many, many riches in my life financially. I've, I've done a lot of successful businesses over my time. And I remember moving into a, a, a nine bedroom house with my, two kids and wife at the time. And it took me, I got the house, fantastic mansion, biggest house in the town, had a maze in the back garden. <laughs> Insane, right? And, and it took me about five days for my ego to pull itself out of my ass. And then, <laughs> and then, and then I realized that, um, that, that why, why do you need to heat and, and air condition a nine bedroom house? And clean, yeah. And the waste. Just and the buyer's demise, the buyer's demise, the buyer's remorse was massive. So if you, if you, you can buy a 100, 100 grand Porsche or a 300 grand Bentley and feel like a bit of buyer's remorse. But when you do that for a nine-bedroom mansion, the remorse is fantastically huge. <laughs> and, and it was like a life-changing feeling of dull. Like it was a, it's like an Uber home. slap in the face. Massive. What did and, I do? Uh, yeah, we were out of there within five months. And that was the last 
mansion I ever bought. And, and it, my psychotherapist, I only started seeing a psychotherapist recently at that time. It was just like, why did you buy it? And I was like, because I've always wanted to buy the biggest house in the town. Yeah. And she said, and what does that say about you? What does that, what's your identity? And I was like, well, because I've been successful. And funnily enough, when you guys, um, when we first got invited, and I got invited to, to speak with you, the first question that was floated as maybe being asked was, do you class yourself as being a success? And I spent hours trying to work that answer out. I was like, <laughs> I was like oh, shit. Because when, I had, when, when, there was, when it was about money, when it was about how much money was in the bank, I'd have just gone, hold on a minute, I'll just check my account. Yeah, I'm a success. And, 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 and that's, that's just BS. I'm just like, no. So am I a success? I don't know. Do I feel happy today? Yeah, I feel over the moon. I've just been to the gym all morning. My wife's here with her sister and they're having a chat about her business, which is awesome. And, um, and I'm on the phone with you. So yeah, I'm success, super successful. One of the questions I got asked by a good friend of mine and one of my coaches I've been working with now for a few years, she's, a, she's an energetic um, coach. She asked me about, it was about a year ago, just before, it was BC before COVID. Um, and uh, she said to me, Sean, how will you know when you've made it? And I was like, oh, oh. And, and very, very rarely, and Boo can probably attest to this, can I not answer a question? I'm pretty good at, uh, you know, responding. But it literally stumped me. And she said, you don't need to answer it. But you don't, right? That's the point. There isn't an end. It's, well, it's, the, end. it's the consistent journey. Like, you'll be successful, get the big house, get the big house. And that's the beauty of, I think, when you're in business and you, and you go through a process of making a lot of money, then losing it and making it, you you start to realize it's it's irrelevant. And you look at guys like Elon Musk, where everyone's like, oh, or, or Jeff Bezos, but everyone forgets the fact that they they went all in, you know, and, and, and they took those risks and they're just lucky that they were the ones with that timing. There's plenty of other online um, shopping portals that aren't Amazon, but for whatever reason, the, the stars aligned. And, and I think that, Success is is happy, um, and if you're happy doing lots of startup businesses because you like the challenge and you like unpicking it and you're a problem solver, yeah, good on you. If you're happy sitting making plastic models, and what I'll tell you when you talk about happiness, one of the interesting journeys I had with happiness was watching plane spotters when I owned a, an aviation magazine, and seeing how happy these people were sitting at the end of a runway taking photos. Of, of a unique airplane and the social media posts and the kudos and there was no money involved in that at all and how much that brought their families together and they took their kids to watch and shared that passion so for me that was a real wake-up call as well about you know happiness can be simplicity and happiness and success is is whatever you define it as and that's why we ask that question jonathan because everyone has a different idea. I think just to just to add to add to that, um, what Boo saying there, Jonathan, um, and it tie back to something you said before, is a, it's a being versus a doing. And what I figured out a few months after that, because I was trying to figure it out logically, oh maybe it's when I have my my inner circles full at a hundred, and I'm helping all hundred businesses at the highest level, and I'm and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, and I've found my new house, and it was like. That was all just rubbish, and I remember at the one of the, the it was actually our event right when COVID was happening, right? And we we it was a week later we've had to cancel it, and because it was right then we were able to change the content. I was able to deliver content that helped support people through that scary period, that initial period. But I remember standing at the back with Sand, and I just and I just said to her, I said, right now, and she knew what I meant. She knew I was answering that question. She and and uh, and she said, why now? And I said, because of who I'm showing up as. I said that's. That to me was the made it, but but it still evolved. 
right? And I've seen it since then. I've felt that again and again and again. But it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a state of being. It's not a doing, and it's not re- attached to the big house. I did the big house thing, but thankfully it was rented it for a year, um, and it was within about six weeks that I realised that holy shit, why? It's just a pain in the ass. It's giant. You know, the, the kid, you can't even see the kids. They're like right at the other end of the house. And it's like, we were all end up in being in the same room all the time anyway. And it makes you think, doesn't it? I mean, everything's about that. They're like, oh, we've got this great house, parents retreat, playroom for the kids. Then you live somewhere like that. And you're like, I never see my kids. We don't spend any time together. You know, it's it's crazy living in Afghanistan and Papua New Guinea and seeing the village and seeing the simplicity and the happiness that those people have playing music, living together, everything's communal you know there's there's some real challenges i think for the western world around what success looks like yeah you know what actually i've been i didn't realize this until we got onto the topic that um you know when when if if people were to ask me what my three favorite books are at the moment because it always changes each each week pretty much i have a lot of books on the go you're reading our questions for us here, mate. You're like, this is fantastic. This is. <laughs> We're talking about being content and happy, and and actually, I've just realised that 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 if I were to ever need to give a three books recommendation, they're all actually about that, and I hadn't realised that until we talking about it. But and so the, the three books I mentioned one of them already, which is Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. His, his interpretation of happiness is actually finding a meaning of something, having a reason for something that matters. And the fact that we all are actually on this journey and those that die peacefully are those that actually have found purpose and reason and meaning. So Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. By the way, if you don't want to read the whole book, his students, um, Papatakis and his wife, uh, wrote a book called Prisoners of Our Thoughts, which is like a condensed version of Man's Search for Meaning just as good. So there's a little hack. The second book is by Darren Brown, the magician. Um, and Darren and I both studied um, neuro-linguistic programming at the same time. We're, we're both pretty old now. And so at the early doors of behavioral economics, that was kind of new and we're both in that early cohort. And his book, Happy, is fantastic. Um, and it's, yeah, and the subtitle is why more or less everything's pretty much okay. And the third book is by the brilliant actor and producer, Michael, Matthew McConaughey. And Matthew McConaughey's book, uh, Green Lights, is, is, is just a great um, modern day tome of, of, of how you can approach a version of approaching life, uh, life. And the reason it's called Green Lights is that he spends his entire days seeing things as opportunities, as green lights, as, oh, oh, this is a green, oh, I've just been told but that my daughter has to come home from school because she's, she's, um, she's feeling ill. Here's a green light for me to show how much of a supportive dad I can be and give her more love than I gave her yesterday. Oh, I've just found out that my, you know, that my producer has actually uh, lost a film deal that we were just about to do. Here's a green light for me to actually see how I can set up my own production company. So I don't need to, you know, and so the whole thing is like an architecture of green lights and yeah, and it's a brilliant book. So green lights by Matt McConaughey, Darren Brown, happy and Frankel's uh, search for meaning is, is all about what we've been speaking about. We've basically done a preface of a whole lot. They should have paid us. <laughs> and it's, that's a cognitive um, process again, right there where you're thinking in a situation where you might have a, a, a negative or, or, or emotive response, uh, and 
again, being a fighter pilot, being in business 16 years and going back at it, we created this mindset to do the same thing, which is like, oh, that didn't work. Oh, I didn't, I didn't do exactly what I planned to do there. Why? Uh, was it me or was it what I planned to do? And, and adjust that and take that opportunity to learn from it, but not just learn from it, action it. Action it every day. And I love that green light analogy because that's where we're saying, well, here's a green light and here's what I am going to do. Not here's a green light. Let me ponder for a little while and, and think about the options that are open to me to change my life and then not do anything. And that that, that bias to action um, is is so important. I feel in my, in my, second, my second TED Talk, um, which is called the main thing. It's on it's on TED.com, but it also you can find it Jonathan McDonald, Ted Porto. It's the Portugal um, one that I did, uh, 2013. Um, the I speak about the fact that we already know the answer. We have our instinct already tells us what the answer is. We instinctively know. If we're in a relationship that actually isn't feeding our souls, we already know it. If we're in a job that we don't necessarily want to be in, we already know it. We, we start, we're at a restaurant, we already know whether or not the environment is going to suit us or not. We don't need to mentally work it out because we already know. And I believe that signal versus, the signal versus noise that we have at the moment in a world full of noise and microjournalism devices, micro billboards of personal opinion and armchair politicians and slacktivists who double like something. This world is so noisy. The only sig- the way that to get to our signal is by realizing that we actually probably are generating our signal all the time. And if we can actually attach ourselves back to our instinct and realize what really we, we instinctively would feel and what we'd instinctively do, then we can rationally look at the biases and heuristics that are masking what we need to be doing. And, um, and that's why I both admire both of what you guys do, because even though, Boo, you're saying that you've only been in the coaching business for five years, I'll take a guess of the fact that you've probably been in the coaching business for 30 years, it's just in the last five years, you've called it coaching. Mm. And I'm going to take a guess that the 25 years prior to that, you were still coaching. You're coaching yourself and the people around you and, and the people you worked with. And all you've done now is you've just compartmentalized it into something that is theoretically a coach. It's like my mum <laughs> said to me when I, when I came back with my fifth book, bear in mind my first book sold three copies. My second book <laughs> sold two, 28 copies, all of whom went to my family. My third book sold about 55 copies. That's because the publisher forced me to buy them. My fourth book, my fourth book sold no copies because it was wrongly listed on Amazon. My fifth book sold 75,000 copies in five days and went number one on all the charts. Amazon bestseller, Sunday awesome. Times bestseller, and everything else like that. That's awesome. And also that you share that story, you know, that because a lot of people go, hey, I'm an eight-time author. I've written eight books. But no one really knows what, what the meat is behind that. <laughs> exactly right. The true story. Exactly. So yeah. I went back to my mum and I said, mum, here's my best-selling book. Here's the Sunday Times. Here's my name in the Sunday Times. Here's the Amazon chart with my name at the top of it. There you go. And she goes, ah, so you're an author. Because <laughs> she's been wondering for the last four, 48 years what the hell I do. And then and it's like, Mum, I, I wrote my first book 20 years ago. <laughs> so it's kind of like the validation that people sometimes feel that when you've, when you've got an, a title under your name, like for instance, I'm a coach because I coach or I'm an author because I'm, I've got a bestseller. I think we're all already it. We all are already it. And, I, yeah. and not to be on a block universe, multiverse theory, fatalism tip, but in terms of we are innately here for, to, to, to do what we are doing without any dogmatism. Just we're, we're here to do what we're doing. And so people who are a coach at 45, 55, whatever, 
have pretty much always been coaches and people who are running in in a circle were probably running in in a circle in university, except they didn't call it an inner circle. Mm. And so, and, and actually if you look at look back in the history, I've done a lot of work with the chief exec of Ikea who, who wrote the forward to my most recent book, the one that did sell. And, and you know, this work that I've done with him um, was almost purely down to how he can, you know, how he can do what he wanted to do when he was growing up, how he can make that shoehorn that into his job at Ikea as the chief exec. And, and I almost set up a service called What I Wanted to Be. And, and that service is going to be like what you could write in, what you wanted to be when you were growing up. And then it match makes you to people who actually became that. So for instance, <laughs> someone who wanted to be a fighter pilot can be matched with Boo. And Boo goes, here's the realities of what it was like being a fighter pilot. So it kind of has this generational, kind of cross-generational symbiotic nature. of. But then I, I killed the idea because I realized that part of the experience of life isn't to be told that it's good or bad by someone else. Part of the experience is that we have to go through it. So any regrets, for instance, I, what would I tell myself if I was a younger, younger me? Nothing. If I, if I had to tell myself one thing, I'd say, you can choose. Don't yeah. listen to other people. You can choose. That's it. I wouldn't say, oh, don't do this. Don't get married to that narcissist. Don't, you know, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't say any of that. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. It's so hard when you're a parent. Like I was thinking when you're saying, uh, your mum was like, oh, you're an author. I was thinking what my mum my would say. And she goes, oh, that's nice, love. Are you happy? Yeah, that's, that's kind of it. <laughs> there you go. And actually, isn't that beautiful? I mean, my, my, my daughter recently quit university to start a ballet degree instead. And she was, she, was, she was doing medicine degree at Oxford University. And I was like, I've got a daughter at Oxford University. I would tell everyone. I would tell everyone who meets me, they go, hey, who are you? And I'd be like, I'm Jonathan. I've got a daughter at Oxford University studying medicine. And, and, and then she quit. And I was like, oh, shit, that's my tagline. No, I'm, I'm, the dad, I'm the dad of the daughter. And, uh, and, and, and I says, what are you going to do? And she goes, well, I'm going I'm to study ballet. And I was like, okay. And she goes, because it makes me happy. It makes me really happy. Ballet makes me happy. It always has done. All the way through my grades, all the performances at school, I love ballet. That's what I'm doing. And I was like, you know what? Good for you. Because actually, you know, now my tagline is, Hi, my name's Jonathan. I've got a son and a daughter who are both doing what they love. That's my tagline. That's success. I can die happy. That's what I'm here to do. I'm here to, I'm here to have enabled two little versions of me to be their own version of themselves and do what they want to do to be happy. Job done. That's absolutely, absolutely amazing. And you know what? I think that's an incredible way to, uh, to wrap up a, a amazing conversation. Uh, there's been a lot about uh, life, about being human, um, how we've all got our uh, our bullshit, our stuff, our stories, our beliefs, uh, our handbrakes, you know, but we're also the accelerator, not just the handbrake. And um, uh, Jonathan, want to say a massive, you know, thank you for sharing a bit of your journey and your story uh, with ourselves, uh, myself and Boo and, and our listeners. Um, but yeah, we really, really do appreciate you taking the time to come on the, the podcast. Thanks. It'd be an absolute honor. I think you guys are doing such great things and I'm, I'm, watch, I'm cyber stalking all of your stuff. I think you're brilliant. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I'd love uh, to be part of the inner circle. I'd love to be part of anything. If we can ever do anything together, I'm, the answer is yes. I have awesome. a tendency to say yes to everything. <laughs> There's a green light right there. <laughs> also, Jonathan, thanks so much, mate. That was a brilliant conversation. Really enjoyed that.
This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of the few. We'll see you next week.